Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with supercars racer turned F1 medical car driver, Carl Reindler. If you've arrived at this point and not heard part one, head back to the library and give it a listen. It charts Carl's career from his early days in Perth to a lesser known incident that could have ended his dream before it even began. Making the move to race overseas and coming up against some great names at iconic tracks and much more. Now, later in part two here, we will talk about his position as medical car driver in Formula One, where he's required to use his race driving skills, if called upon, to get the F1 doctor to a crash scene as quickly and safely as possible and to assist the doc if needed. It seems like the last thing that he would want to do, and yet in some ways, the incident we are about to talk about in detail makes him a perfect candidate. We take you back to his home track in Wanneroo in Perth, Barber Gallo as it was called. The year is 2011. His qualifying and build-up to the race had been good. He'd only just met his now wife Elise and naturally family and friends were there supporting him. The fireball crash that followed on the start line is one Supercars fans will never forget. Carl's memories of that day are crystal clear more than a decade later. I've come to terms with it. I'm, I'm comfortable with what happened. But at, at the time, yeah, uh, I felt like we had really good momentum that season. You know, we, we'd qualified sixth and had a great race result on the Saturday at Barbagallo. Uh, as you mentioned, I'd, I'd met my now wife, Elise, yeah, probably six months prior. Um, I was also working very closely with um, Steve Hooker, who I met He's still a good friend, I think. He's one of my best mates in the world. And um, working with other athletes from other sports, with, with Elise and Steve, um, put a different perspective on how to approach the sport and, and confidence and being in the right headspace. And um, I was living with Steve that year, 2011, and I don't think I've ever mentioned it to him, but I think he really, between him and Elise, they, they, they brought the best out of me. I felt so confident going into that Barbagallo weekend. Um, things were looking good. The, you know, the relationships with the team were, were fantastic. It, it, it's just a good vibe in general. And um, I've been working on my fitness really hard for, for that six months, that, that entire year. So I felt, you know, I mentioned the first season, struggling physically in the car. I felt, I felt on top of the car physically. And um, that gives, it gives you confidence in, in itself. So we qualified on the, the Sunday morning. Qualifying went quite well. Uh, we had a few issues. Uh, I think we had some traffic, but ended up qualifying 13th for the first race and inside the top 10 for the second race. Um, as you say, we lined up on the grid for the start of the race, feeling good off the back of the, the result from the previous day. And the process that I went through was really no different to any other time. Um, we always lean on the clutch a little bit, try to find the biting points for an you know, op- optimal start. And then um, the line locker, we, we obviously, you hit the brake pedal, there's a certain amount of pressure that you, you get, you hit the button, locks the front brakes on, so you can lean on the clutch without creeping forward and jump starting. 
I knew something was wrong really quite early in the piece um, before the red lights even came on for the start. I remember finding the biting point and then sort of going back on it a little bit. And then I started to feel it, um, I guess, overheating. And um, I went went straight away to the floor. I thought, if it's if it's overheating... You press the clutch. Yeah. Press the clutch in all the way. And I could feel it um, effectively releasing on me. Um, my foot was to the floor, but the clutch itself was, uh, was starting to grab. So it had actually stalled. The engine had stalled before the red lights even came on. Uh, and there were no systems in place like they, they have now for, for vehicles that have stalled. There's no, there was no anti-stall in the car. So anyway, I had time to put it back into neutral. I fired the engine back up, put my foot on the brake. By this stage, the red lights had just come on. I put my foot to the floor on the clutch, gave it a bucket load of throttle and just jammed it into first gear, but the clutch had failed by this stage. So even with my foot to the floor on the clutch, the second I put it into first gear, the engines died and I was a sitting duck. There was absolutely nothing I could do at this point. And um, it's amazing when, when you're in those those moments, the, the sort of fight or flight thing kicks in and you remember it so, so vividly. You know, this was 11, 11 years ago and I can tell you, I can relive every single moment. I remember looking in the rear vision mirror and bracing myself thinking, you know, someone's going to hit me. And I remember Dave Reynolds in the Stratco car just missing me. And then the, the, the last thing I saw was um, Steve Owen in the, um, it was the VIP. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, Paul Morris. In Paul, yeah, the Paul Morris car um, hit me. And then the, the next thing, the car's pitched so hard. The, the, the hit was so big. It's pitched up to the point. I'm looking straight down at the bitumen in front of me. The car's pivoted, yawed, yeah, roughly 180 degrees to the right, uh, off off the track. And I felt the heat before I saw the flames. Uh, so we'd obviously split the firewall open in the car. Um, and I knew I was in trouble at this stage. I, I, I remember starting to think, I need to get out of here. I saw the flames. I remember... Um, taking a deep breath and, and feeling it burning straight away through my mouth and my chest. Uh, it was, was a horrible feeling. But it's amazing how much, I guess, clarity you have in those moments as well. Um, yeah, it was a panic, but I knew exactly what I needed to do. We practice getting out of the car on a regular basis. We, we have to get out at a minimum amount of time. But um, in the heat of the moment, no, no pun intended, you, you have other variables that you, you'll never, you can never simulate in a practice run. I had to close my eyes. I had to take a breath. So I, I lost vision and I knew that I couldn't take another breath. I had one breath to get out of the car. Uh, otherwise, I was, I was in a lot of trouble. And you know how it, it, we, we refer to the car as the cockpit. It's the cockpit of a, like a fighter plane in there. You're in this cocoon. You, you have limited uh, mobility in the car. Um, you're wearing gloves, you have, you, your vision's obstructed whether you can open your eyes or not. You have all these attachments, five-point five racing harness as well, you, the, the window net to consider, the roll hoop, the, the roll cage itself. So you have this m- small amount of space to get out of. So in theory, in simulation, yeah, undo your belt, take a, you know, undo your helmet fan, the radio, um, the cool suit, undo the window net, open the door and just get out. But when you lose your vision, 
um, and you know you have a limited ma- amount of time to get out, you <laughs> you prioritize certain things. I I didn't bother with the um, the cool suit. The cool suit hose had melted. I didn't have to bother removing it. Um, I just tugged on the radio with my head, and uh, it ripped the radio in half. It just ripped it out, and um, also the the helmet fan. Um, I remember fumbling around trying to find the window net release. Got it pretty pretty quickly in the end, and then the door release button as well. It's not like a conventional handle. There's a little button that you press to open the door, and I just jumped out as quickly as I could. And, and from the the first impact to getting out of the car was was 17 seconds. So it it felt like an eternity, like like it always does in uh, in those life or death moments. And I say that it sounds dramatic, but the had I not been able to get it done, I don't want to know what the alternative was. Um, yeah, had I got, had I received any sort of spinal injury as well from the impact, or been concussed, knocked out completely, I. These are the things that play in your mind afterwards. In the moment, it's fight or flight. Get out as quickly as you possibly can. Um, there was uh, Coxie from uh, from Kelly Racing, who I got to know the following year, had jumped the fence. There's common sense that prevailed. Jumped the fence with an extinguisher. He was the first on the scene. Then Sam, who was my number one mechanic, was, I think, the second on the scene. He's um, spear-tackled me to the ground and, um, you know, rolling me around to get, get rid of any flames that were on me. And um, then, the, obviously, the fireys got there as well. But um, it, was, it was a horrible experience. But it's, it's sort of funny in a way because I remember being in the med centre um, with Dr. Carl, Dr. Carl Lee, who, who looked after me and, and sort of managed it um, uh, over the next, the next couple of weeks. I remember thinking in the, in the medical center, I was in so much pain. I'd burned my hands, I'd burned my face, uh, I had a burn to the back of my leg. All I could think about was whether the car was <laughs> going to be ready in time for the afternoon's race because I qualified well and I wanted to have a red hot go. So um, anyway, I, I got a police escort to Joondalup Hospital and, and met Fiona Wood, who looked after my burns and uh, obviously didn't make the afternoon race, which I was gutted about because Bridie went on to, to win it. And Bugs, who was my teammate second year, ended up on the podium as well. So we had a phenomenal car. We qualified well. I feel like it was such a wasted opportunity. So I was, I think I was more gutted at that, in that moment, the, 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 the opportunity lost for that afternoon race but obviously once you realize the extent of your injuries and you know the, the ramifications it, it changes your perspective and then then you, then you start to think about what could have been and uh you know the the, the the demons and the battles that you go through when you're faced with adversity on that level you dissected this superbly with chad nail on my colleague very very recently can we touch on a couple of things if we can firstly you mentioned about the fact that the sound of the impact, the crash at the time. That is still a very, very vivid recollection for you to this day. Yeah. I what was it like? Describe it. So I, I hadn't really spoken to many people about it for, for the best part of 10 years. And, and the one thing that stuck with me was just the, the, the sheer ferocity of, of the noise. Um, of the impact. The, the impact itself yeah, it's it's so hard to describe, but the the crunching metal, you know, you had a car the car that's hit me at a hundred and forty five kilometers an hour, whatever it was, forty forty odd G impact. 
that the noise that it made you know it's it's a sensory overload as it is you visually um the, the feeling yeah that the heat coming through but the one thing that really stood out to me was just the noise of, of crunching metal and I've, I've never heard anything so loud in my life um it's it's really difficult to put into words dr fiona wood is an amazing burns specialist australian of the year uh, works extensively with the barley bombing victims from from 2005 and she Develop this spray-on tech. This thing, I think it's called Resell, isn't it? And so she worked with you in this process. And we probably do need to to uh, highlight the fact that the safety equipment that you had, from from helmet to gloves, etc., actually did do a good job, didn't it? Yeah, the there was some criticism, uh, almost like a knee-jerk reaction in a way that oh, if if the equipment had done its job, then Carl wouldn't have been injured. But no, it, it actually did its job. Um, I sustained quite severe burns to my hands and the back of my leg the back of my leg was only as a result of getting hitched on something my suit actually got hitched on something on as i was exiting the car so it's it's a tricky one you look at you know jacques villeneuve um who was a teammate uh the following year in supercars he always wears the baggy suits which is fantastic from a fire protection point of view but I got tripped up as a result of my suit also being too baggy. So it was a minor burn to the back of my leg. My hands themselves, everyone thought that the burns I had was as a result of direct uh, flame-to-skin charring, but it wasn't. It was the radiant heat from inside the car. The, um, the, uh, the experts, the fire experts estimated it was between eight and 900 degrees Celsius inside the car. So the radiant heat... It cooks. It cooks. It boils. It boils the fluid inside your skin. So it burns from the inside out. So the, the, the gloves did their job. The trouble with gloves, you need them to be tight and close to your skin for the best possible dexterity and feel when you're driving the car. The burns to my face, I can honestly only blame myself for that. Um, in a touring car, it's common for us. Yeah, some guys wear... Uh, wear visors um, all the way down. Frosty typically always wears his visor down. Some open them up. Some, you know, Windcup always had a, an open um, open visor. And uh, I think it, it was a turning point for me because I always ran it open for better breathability in the car. I didn't think for a second that by having it open, I'd be exposing myself to such severe injuries. So I burned both, both my eyebrows off. My, my skin was all peeling off around my nose um, but the, the very small pocket or, or space that was exposed um, was, was all burnt. But, but where the balaclava was, no trouble at all. So all the equipment did everything it was supposed to do. It was the, the only bits that were exposed that, uh, that were injured on my face. Um, you, know, you, you mentioned Fiona, and, and she is one of the most remarkable human beings. She is, she's a special person and, and just the most humble down-to-earth person she's the best at what she does in the world um she's honed her craft um you know talk about passion for for something she's passionate about that and uh it was off the back of the the bali bombings in 2002 i think that um that she really you know worked and, and honed honed uh, her craft and, and and created this this spray on technology that you mentioned so i was so fortunate that it happened at Barbagello in my hometown where Fiona worked. 
And uh, I got to know her really well over the next couple of weeks and um, went to a couple of charity balls to, um, to speak, uh, do like a Q&A. Um, it was the least I could do to, you know, to say thanks for the, for the incredible work that she did. And, and, you know, you're sitting here with me right now, you know, no one else can, uh, can see it, but there's almost no scarring whatsoever on my hands or my face, my leg. And um, I, I just I reflect on it think how, how lucky I was to be there uh, it was an awful accident but there's so much I think to be grateful for as well you get back on the horse fairly quickly and, and at a in a Porsche at a club day you know get back behind the wheel which I, I think is terrific what I'd like to know in between is a couple of things firstly was there ever an element of doubt in your mind about whether you'd had that big accident in the Formula V you nearly you know amputation was contemplated when you talked about that earlier in the podcast here now this happens to you and what are the discussions like with with family it's early days with elise but i mean you know mom dad whatever are they sort of saying okay we've had two goes from a luck standpoint here do we need to rethink things was there ever an element of doubt and what were the conversations like i think it was always on my terms the my family were always very supportive um they, my mum my mum was frightened my mum was there that day it was Elisa's second ever supercar event she'd ever been to she went to the Clipsal 500 earlier that year and then Barbagello and um, it's, I think it being a, a professional um, race driver you have to be selfish at times and it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of family members but this was the first time ever my mum explained to me how horrible it was. You know, she was she was in tears. She was so emotional about seeing her son, you know, her eldest son, um, in this fire. She, you know, she she had doubts herself whether you know, she saw it at first and thought, oh, it can't be Carl, it can't be Carl. And then this realization, she explained to me that, um, oh my gosh, it is Carl. And then it's hard to talk about, but. She thought she thought the worst. She thought, "My son, he's he's gone." Um, Sorry, mate. I don't no, know. it's just. But to hear that from um, so from family is um, is really tough because you. It's when, a different perspective. It's it? a different perspective. You're um, you're doing. You're out there doing everything for yourself, and and there is an element of being being selfish. I think you do have to be a bit selfish, but uh, when when you're on the track, certainly. Um, but to hear that from mum, it. It really played on my mind, I think, um, especially mum. For, for Elise, she was supportive no matter what. You know, she'd had her own trials and tribulations um, in, her, in her own sport. She'd had injuries and sickness and uh, she understood the adversity of sport in general and, and how hard it is to come back from, um, from something like that. So it was probably, probably talking to mum that it was the hardest part and, and, and there were doubts. There really were doubts. Um, I want to, you know, want to put a brave face on and say, no, there was never a doubt for a second. But the reality was there, there were considerations. Do, I've almost lost my life. My mum, you know, my mum's a mess. Is this something that I really want to be doing? But, but at the same time, she said, Carl, it's, it's your choice. If, if you love the sport as much as I think you do, and I know you do, then... You've, you've got to do what's right for you and um, I'll be supportive all the way. And um, I, it was a really tricky decision and um, I obviously decided to continue with the sport 
Um, part, part of it, I think, was, well, <laughs> most people will have a, a major accident in their career. Most will, will have a couple, but the, an accident of, of that um, magnitude, magnitude um, doesn't, doesn't come about very often. So I thought this is probably the worst accident I'll ever have. If I can deal with that and still love the sport, then I'd, I'd be crazy not to continue. Um, so I, I had the support of, of everyone around me. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I jumped back into a car, uh, a Porsche at a club club event two weeks later. There were three, three weeks gap between Barbagello and Winton the next round. So it was a, a very um, easy way for me to get back into it. At the circuit that it, the, the actual accident happened. I think you've got to, you've got to tackle these things head on. Um, you can't shy away from them and, and, and it, it all worked out. Um, I think the other thing I struggled with was everyone wanting to talk about it. And uh, at the time, I felt it was the right thing to do, but, but it sort of delayed or made things harder as well to, to talk about it. Um, yeah, it was... It was a really challenging few weeks. I mean, I'm dealing with the injuries and, and the pain and discomfort. And burns are horrible. And we, growing up as a as a boy, you, you have injuries left, right, and centre. You fall off a bike, you fall out of a tree, you you know broken bones and grazes and what have you. But but burns just linger on. Um, the recovery time is significantly longer. So you're dealing with the, the physical side of things, the mental side of things, actually putting yourself in other people's shoes around you. And uh, and having to talk about it because everyone wants a, wants a piece of you off the back of something like that. So there was a really challenging few weeks, but the best part was jumping back into a car because it's it's your quiet time. No one can bother you when you're in the car, and that's that's your happy happy place. Can we wrap up this little chapter if we can, mate? Because um, I know it's probably been a bit emotional recounting some of it. The sport's an amazing community, right? So people at the time are assisting you as this is going on uh, you've got great people like Dr Carl Lee as you talked about as well they made some great decisions in the wake of this I think they were already heading that down that path anyway in relation to where the fuel cell would be placed in the car and and so on did the sport um, did did you ever feel at all within the sport that you were damaged goods because of this or was it only ever that you you were embraced and I ask that with the greatest respect because sometimes when drivers have a major crash the brutality of the pit lane that we are in the paddock we are in here now in Formula One sometimes it changes their view their perspective of you did you feel that at all within supercars did it change anyone's view of you in the lane I, I don't think I've ever discussed this but the truth is being completely up front I, I I did think that for a period of time and felt I really had to to prove myself uh, off the back of it and I think it was only three or four rounds later I, I had that you know, great qualifying session at Queensland Raceway and qualified in fifth place so that that for me was probably settled any any doubts that I had at least temporarily but at the same time I <laughs> you, you can't help but have those thoughts what are other people thinking um how long can I, you know, keep doing the sport I love for? And uh, I think it was about that time that I started conversations with the Kelly brothers, Kelly Racing, about about 2012, and and the fact that they were willing to engage in a, in a conversation with me about, you know, employing my services for the following season um, was a was a confidence booster. But it, it did 
did hurt the confidence without a doubt. I spoke about how much confidence I had going into the Barbagallo weekend. I felt like I we had great momentum. Um, things were going so well and it and it really did affect things for a solid couple of months after that. Two-part question here. The decision to leave BJR. When you think back on it now, how do you feel about that? And looking at the chapter at Kelly's and knowing the promise, knowing the potential, etc., and and perhaps how it didn't play out the way you anticipated. With the benefit of time, we've had a bit of time now, how do you look back on, on all of that? I'm not a believer in regret, right? I say that quite often. You make the best choice you can at the time for reasons that are important to you. But how do you look back on all that now? The the Kelly Racing decision, in hindsight, was was not the right decision for me. Uh, at the time, as you say, you make the best decision with the information you have. And I looked at uh, their facility, what they were up to, the the promises that they were making, and you know, compared to compared to BJR. Yeah, BJR, they've got this, uh, what feels like a, a, a dingy sort of uh, setup out there in Albury. But the reality is that they focus, they focus on performance and, and what's, what's critically important for, for results. And not to say that, that Kelly's didn't, but I think I was um, lulled in a way into this, you know, this dream. Yeah, this dream, this, this shiny, shiny object in a way. I, I remember going to their facility down in Brayside and it was it was world class it was one of the best facilities I'd been to other you know race shops before and I was blown away at their facilities and and the people and the staff and and I thought wow this is this is next level it's impressive um lots of promises as well and and the reality of it yeah calling a spade a spade I really felt like that year um was was a bit of a write-off I felt like once the conversation started with with Nissan about instigating Nissan Motorsport for 2013 and beyond for Car of the Future, I've just got to say it as it is that I felt they lost sight of that 2012 season. Uh, I felt they'd stopped putting effort into it. Murph, uh, well, obviously had Murph, Todd, and Rick as as teammates, but it it felt felt like the Kelly side of the camp and the, the Murph and Carl side of the camp as well. And I, I loved working with Murph, but um, even he became, and, and you know Murph very well, he's your next door neighbour. He became quite bitter towards the latter part of the year uh, about the effort that was being put in. And um, the, the car was just, it was, it was probably the worst supercar I've ever driven at times. Um, it was bordering on dangerous at some events. I remember the, the Sandown 500 event with, uh, with Daniel Gaunt as my teammate. The thing was a bucking bronco. It gave me a headache to drive this thing. And um, it's so hard to stay. I'm an optimistic person. I'm a positive person, glass, glass half full all the time. But when, you, when your teammate's getting frustrated and bitter about the situation and you're not getting the results as well it's so hard to stay positive in that environment and um yeah then there were there were sort of promises about nissan motorsport the following year and then i remember the conversation i had with john crennan that uh that i wouldn't be involved for 2013 and it was just gut-wrenching debilitating and i remember just i, I was angry at the time that that i'd that I'd sort of uh, 
been, felt like I'd been tricked in a way or been, been hard done by. You know, I, I came into this operation thinking that it was going to be the best possible decision. And then BJR were having some fantastic results in, uh, in that year, 2012. And, and in hindsight, yeah, I think if I were to do it all again with, with what I know now, I would have stuck it out. I just want to break into the podcast here for a brief moment. My policy with these things, as you know, is balance, but it's the guest in the guest's words. Now, to be fair to the Kelly brothers, Rick and Todd, and to John Crennan, who worked there at the time, I haven't spoken to them about Carl's chapter with Kelly Racing. They may have a very different view on it. One thing I learned out of the experience, because there's always learnings as well, is, is the importance of, and value of, of relationships and continuity. Um, that's one thing I, I took out of it. So it wasn't all doom and gloom and negative. So I, I learned that and that's something I've, I've certainly taken forward. I, I wish I'd stuck it out with, with BJR and um, continued to work on those relationships and rapport and, and that momentum and confidence that we had throughout that 2011 season. I'm a big believer in balance. So can I ask this question if you're, if you're comfortable with it? In, in that phase, when the chips are down like that, when you, uh, you know, when it becomes a grind like that because it's not going the way that you want it, I'm a believer in navel gazing, right? Like, what can I do? Did you do some navel gazing? Were there things you feel like you could have done better in that, in that phase yourself? Yeah, you always think, well, what, firstly, what's in my control and what's out of my control? Um, you have to establish that. I'm, I'm quite a pragmatic person. And I thought, but you're trying to talk yourself into it every time. I remember going to race weekends and taking a deep breath before going and thinking, okay, how's this going to work out? Um, as long as I feel like as long as I put my best foot forward and do everything in my power to get the best possible outcome um, I while I might be disappointed in the in the result I can't be disappointed in the effort that I put in and and it was a bit like that Um, the tail half of the year we we had a couple of it was one qualifying session we ended up um at the pointy end of the grid, somehow it, it aligned. We had uh, the car was it had a very small window for setup, and we somehow found this window, and we managed to, to qualify quite well. But um, it just felt like a grind day in, day out. Um, and when when I found out that I, I had no opportunity in 2013 with Nissan Motorsport. You shift your focus to well, where are the other opportunities at that stage? And I, I don't think I've ever spoken about it, but I, I it was a really long way down. I remember going to the US in um, in December that year um, with Elise and and Steve Hooker and his now wife, and I was on the phone almost every single day of that trip with DJR about about a drive for the following season in 2013, and we just. I had a, a commercial manager on board that was looking after uh, the commercial side of the sport and sponsorship, and we came so close to putting a deal together for 2013. And um, I remember I was in it was the tail end of that trip in uh, in North America, where we, we did we couldn't put the deal together, and I had this realization that I'm I'm not going to get a drive for 2013 full time. And as as gut wrenching as it is when when you've worked so hard towards it, there was almost this um, just just having clarity over not being there. In a weird kind of way, there was this uh, sense of relief as well. 
So I, I took a took a few weeks off, and um, then then the focus shifts to well, what's next? What what do you do? It's um, I've made the move to Melbourne by this stage at the start of twenty twelve to to take the sport more seriously. Melbourne, sort of the, the hub for motorsport in Australia. Um, I was doing everything right, taking the sport seriously. Was in the workshop every other week. Now what? And um, despite the way I felt I was treated. Um, throughout 2012 I was able to put that behind me um, and I got the opportunity to drive with Rick in the Jack Daniels car the Nissan Nissan car for 2013 for the Enduros which um, was actually a really enjoyable experience I actually loved working with Rick that year that was it was a great car to drive it just didn't have the straight line speed so um, it was it was a lot of fun um, we I remember leading leading the Gold Coast 600 race um, Overtaking Daniel Gaunt, actually my teammate, the previous year for the lead of the, the Gold Coast 600. We finished, I think, fifth or sixth. Um, so was, we had a really good result. Loved driving that car, and then um, uh, I think at the same time, um, Elise and I had been talking about life and starting to take our, our own relationship a bit more seriously. And um, She'd obviously finished up the Olympics in 2012. She went to London Olympics and she was contemplating similar things to what I was. What's next? What, what happens after sport? Uh, can I keep doing the sport at arm's length? Um, do I want to? And it's really hard to let go of a sport like this. So um, I ended up taking 2014 off and my, our daughter Charlotte was born that year and we had a lot of difficulties and complications getting pregnant in the first place, but, um, but also... Um, yeah, Charlotte was born with congenital heart disease. So to take the year off 2014 and focus on that was, was probably the best thing I could have done. And I think a year away from the sport, I thought it was going to be really hard to get back in. But it, it puts so much in perspective. Um, what, yeah, I guess it shows you what's important as well. Yeah, my, Charlotte was born and... Um, we, she's a good little fighter, mate. Isn't she? she is a fighter. She's uh, she's a very resilient little girl, and um, you know we, we've since uh, we've since uh, she's had a heart procedure late last year, and she's fighting fit and and super strong, and and just the most amazing little girl. And um, having that year off in 2014 was the best thing for me. And I think the best I ever drove in, in my racing career was after that year off. And I remember sitting at the driver's briefing in 2015 for the Sandown 500 when I was racing with, uh, with Tim Blanchard. And I remember thinking, everyone's, it's, it's a bubble. Everyone's taking this so seriously. I'm just grateful to be here. And, and, and I, think, I think the last... That's a real perspective shift, mate, isn't it? Well, I think I'd, another learning uh, here, I think I'd lost sight of the fun factor in 2012. Well, I had. I was not enjoying it in 2012. 2013, you know, it was arm's length. I did a few races. It was okay, but but it's, I think the the on the um, the effects of 2012 were still there, and I I was not loving the sport like I was. And I'm a big believer that if you don't love doing something, you should, you should find something else to do. So the year off was great. Put everything in perspective. I came back in 2015 with a new lease on life, and I never drove better. And I, I attribute that to having fun again and and one thing another thing i've learned from my motorsport career is if you if you enjoy doing something you're going to do it 
you're going to do a good job of it eventually. If you're persistent and you love it and you're having fun, you're going to do a good job of it. And I, that's a really important life lesson that I've, I've got out of motorsport. And I found that fun factor again in 15. Um, had a cracking Sandown 500. It didn't work out at Bathurst, uh, unfortunately. Tim, um, Tim hit the wall at, uh, at the great, which ended our race. Um, just an honest mistake that happens at the mountain. But even 2016 with Lee and, and Charlie had a great year and I was just loving the sport. Elbows out, having good races and just fell back in love with the sport. Uh, and it was a great feeling. I need to take a breath. What a journey and what a guy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Carl. And now, on to the next chapter of life. All with a big smile on his face. Keep it going, Rusty. When was the decision to stop? And have you fully drawn a, a line in that regard? Now, we're going to talk about your new role in a moment. But do you, is there still a want to dabble in a few little things and go off and drive something? Or is it done now in your mind? No, it's, it's done. And I'm so content with it. Um, which Where did you come to that, that realisation? Well, it wasn't... A, it wasn't all on, on my terms. So I did the 2016 and 2017 season with, with Lee in the, uh, the Preston Hire car with Charlie. Um, it was a two-year deal. Uh, so I did the first year, which is a single-year deal. Then I signed a two-year contract for 17 and 18 with Charlie. And uh, it was really disappointing how it worked out there. We, we had a great result. We finished... A th- I think sixth again at the Gold Coast 600 race uh, in 2017. Everything was great, working well, loved the team. And I think it was a text message I got from Charlie. No, it wasn't even from Charlie. Um, I forget who. Anyway, not even the, uh, the, the, the decency of a, a phone call or a conversation about it. It was, hey... We're, um, we're going with someone else um, for, for this year. I was like, I've got a contract in place. This is late January. So I firstly tried to, to negotiate and understand the reasons why. If it's, if it's a financial thing, it, you know, I'm, I'm happy to discuss potentially reducing my fee um, for the year um, or different payment terms, whatever it might be. I'm, I'm a team player and I'm happy to discuss with you. But they'd already formed, they'd made their mind up about it. And um, it, was, it was so disappointing at the time. And um, I didn't know what to do, how to tackle it. When, when I realised the writing was on the wall and they made the decision, late January, all the decisions are made at the tail end of the previous year for, for Enduro Drive. So I thought, what, what am I going to do now? And I, I remember desperately making phone calls to, to every you know, team manager that I, that I had in my phone book to see if there are any opportunities available. And then you know, halfway through February, realized that it was done. I, I wasn't going to be driving at all that year. And um, I, was, I was angry. I was fuming at the way that I'd been, been treated. And, and since, just, just to clarify, I'd, you know, Everything's cool with Charlie, with Charlie now, but I was, I was really pissed off with him at the time and I, I let it be known um, that that's, that's how I felt. And um, I just felt like I'd been screwed over. I, I consider myself to be one of the nice guys in the sport and it just one thing I have to say about the sport, it, it can bring the best and worst out of people. You get, these, you know, you get highly successful people that so become cowboys in a way at times and um, 
I love the sport to bits, but I can see why people end up bitter about the sport or with chips on their shoulder about things. And I, I didn't want that. I didn't want that experience. I, I wanted to have fond, good memories of the sport that I love. And um, I had to deal with that throughout the year. And again, going through the, the challenges of, of what am I going to do now? Um, I, I'd had other, other opportunities out of the sport in the automotive industry. I'd done a, a stint working at Confederation of Australian Motorsport as their high performance manager. But um, when you're told at that point, when you, th- you think you've got something secure and it's just plucked out from underneath you, what, what do you do now? And um, that, was, that was a really tough period to go through. Um, my, my son, Sebastian, was born in 2017. So I've got two kids um, and, a, and a dwindling motorsport career here. What, what do you go and do now? And um, I actually received a phone call from, uh, from someone in, in January about a potential job op- opportunity. And um, I thought, well, again, my attitude towards things, let's, let's have a go at it. So I started working more in the, the automotive industry with, uh, with Jeff Becker. And uh, was still, he gave me some flexibility to continue doing work in, in motorsport. So just because I wasn't competing in motorsport, doesn't, it didn't mean that I wasn't involved. I there's so still many, love the game. I still love the game, and there's so many different roles that I've I've taken on in the sport, from driving standards to coaching. Did some engineering for a little while. Worked very closely with uh, with Motorsport Australia and the FIA on um, on programs overseas, training programs overseas. Um, it took me all around the world. I feel so lucky to to have had these opportunities. I went to Romania, to Nepal to Sri Lanka, to, to Korea three years in a row, d- delivering these training programs. And I, I have to say that's some of the most rewarding stuff that I've done in the sport because you're giving back, you're imparting knowledge to people that are equally passionate about the sport and, and enabling them to pursue the passion that they love. And that, that was a real thrill for me. And I found, you know, you know I could continue the passion that I have in a, in a different way. So... In the midst of all of that, in, in uh, helping emerging drivers and people in motorsport and so on, an opportunity opens to drive the medical car in Formula One. How did that come about? Are you enjoying that? And you're kind of doing half the, the season in this role now, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, this opportunity came about, really, um, I mentioned meeting uh, Alan Vandermeer, who won the British F3 Championship, I think 2003 off the top of my head, uh, when Courtney was over there competing. Um, I met him at the Carlin Test with Adrian Burgess back in 2004, off the back of winning the, uh, the Australian Championship. I lived with Alan in 2006 in the UK. Crazy how worlds have collided here, mate. That's amazing. <laughs> and we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't exchange numbers when we were at the test day, but we, we got on well and uh, to this day he's one of my best mates in the world. Um, I ran into him at a petrol station in Milton Keynes <laughs> in 2005 and um, he said, mate, we should, um, we should catch up. Um, he was working for BAR Honda at the time. And um, he had to try that thing on the Bonneville Salt Flats, I think, didn't he? He did a record in that. He holds the world land speed record for a Formula One car. Um, he said, "Come down, we'll do some training at the, the Honda facility. Um, it'll be great." So um, we lived together that year. He got the call up. Yeah, we, we did A1 GP together as well. He was the South African driver for a period of time there. And um, 
he started driving the medical car, I think it was 2009. He, he ran into Charlie Whiting at an airport and Charlie said, hey, we, we need someone for this role. Would you be interested? So off the back of doing this role in Formula One, Alan started, he saw an opportunity. Uh, he's a clever guy, isn't he? He's a very clever guy, software developer. Um, he started this this business, Signal Biometrics, with Ian Roberts, who is still the medic, uh, still the doctor for Formula One, and the biometric gloves that they wear in Formula One are the the gloves that Ian and Alan have have created. So Alan started this phenomenal business, and uh, it's sort of grown organically. They haven't advertised or done, you know, done any marketing, and. Uh, he just he sees opportunities. He looks at the world differently, and I've got the the utmost respect for, uh, for for him. But it got to the point where he needed to be involved in Formula One to continue growing the business. But by being involved in Formula One and being away for twenty two weekends or weeks of the year, didn't have the time to to grow the business. So he called me at the start of the twenty nineteen Formula One season and said, "Carl, this is my situation. Classic catch twenty two. The only way forward for me, I think, is, is to share the role. But the, there's only one person on the planet I can think of that I think is up, up to it, that I trust as well to doing the role, and it's you. Would you be interested in sharing the role? I said, mate, of course, I'd love to do it. It's, it's meaningful. Um, it's Formula One. It's the pinnacle of the sport. Um, how do we make this work? Um, Charlie Whiting had passed away that year, and Michael Massey had taken the reins as race director. And uh, Alan planted the seed with Michael. Michael was supportive of it towards the tail end of the 2019 season. The intention was to do the role, split the role in 2020. I sat in the med car at the Australian Grand Prix in 2020 with the intention of going to Bahrain the following weekend and the world changed. Um, COVID happened. It was Friday the 13th of March, 2020. I remember the day clearly. It was an eerie day at the Grand Prix where the spectators were left outside. Unforgettable. I remember it vividly. That press conference is the biggest press conference I've ever been to. It was um, It was just weird. It was unusual. And I thought the opportunity is, is lost. Um, I, I still had other opportunities. I was doing a lot of other things within motorsport and... Um, and also uh, automotive, and um, kept the conversations up, but I thought maybe the opportunities come and gone, and, and that's that. Michael uh, won't go into his, his exit uh, from, from Formula One, but he obviously left at the end of the 2021 season. Um, and I thought the one guy who was supportive of this happening, uh, well, both guys, Alan left as well at the end of 21. Um, the, the opportunity's lost. And then uh, Neil's actually reached out, the current race director, Niels Vidic, um, in February this year and said, hey, I believe we've, um, we've had some conversations with you. From all accounts, you're the guy for the role. You, would you like to pick up the conversation? And of course I said, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about it. And... Um, he wanted two people for the role. Uh, There's no sort of redundancy built into the role. It's a bit like Bernd Maylander. He's, he's done the role for, for the best part of um, 20, 23 years. So, um, yeah, um, we worked out the calendar and uh, got, got the gig. We arrived at the Australian Grand Prix and um, Baptism of Fire um, was 
yeah, just thrown at the deep end, work it all out. Ian's been fantastic, um, getting me up to speed, educating me about the role. It's not just about driving the medical car fast around the track. It's so much more than that. And uh, I was exposed to a pretty major accident with Joe Guan Yu at the Silverstone Grand Prix earlier this year. And, um, yeah, it's... It, you never want to see it. We, I always say a, a boring weekend for me is a successful weekend in the role. But um, you learn so much from those experiences and thankfully everyone was okay. Um, I'm, I'm loving it. The role is it's, it's special. I feel like we're actually we're making a difference in a way. Um, and you get to drive two cool cars, don't and, you? And so a couple of great cars between the uh, AMG GT four-door and the Aston Martin DBX. Um, so, yeah, I've been flown around the world this year. Went to Azerbaijan, which is an amazing place. Um, did the Silverstone Grand Prix. Hungaroring. I love Hungary. It's a, it's a pretty special place as well. And my ancestors are actually uh, Hungarian, Austrian and Hungarian. So it was pretty cool to go there. French Grand Prix. Uh, we're here this weekend at Singapore and I have Abu Dhabi at the end of the season. So I, I honestly feel so lucky to, to be here and doing this role. And um, it's exciting. Thank you. We've had an amazing conversation here and covered a, a heck of a lot of ground. Great to see that you're at peace with it um, and the way that you've kind of framed the, that whole uh, massive crash now. And I, and I love the fact that there's a, a give back here, that you're enjoying, you know, perhaps even the, the instruction side for young drivers and things like that and, and working here in, in Formula One again. Great to shoot the breeze with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Rusty. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Link Kelly. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Stories.